Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. The Economist. Hello, you're listening to The Great Debate, the first in a series of podcasts from The Economist tackling some of the most contentious issues of the day. I'm Anne McElvoy, Senior Editor. In this first edition, we are considering the campaign to introduce assisted dying, a moral dilemma fraught with difficulties that also elicits strong emotions on both sides. Under our new editor, Zanny Minton Beddoes, The Economist has taken a stand in support of assisted dying. In this podcast, we'll discuss the arguments and draw out the international experience with leading experts from both sides of the case. Joining me to do that are Lord Falconer, whose assisted dying bill reached the committee stage of the House of Lords in the last Parliament, Baroness Finlay, President of the British Medical Association, who's worked in palliative care for nearly 30 years and who opposed Lord Falconer's bill. On the line from the Netherlands is Professor Theo Bohr, an ethicist who was part of a review committee for euthanasia and has concerns about the way it's working out in his country. And The Economist's editor, Zanny minton Beddoes. Now, Zanny, why did you make this a campaign so early in your editorship and why is it specifically an economist subject? Well, Anne, you know, I think there are really three reasons. The first is that uh, I think the question of assisted dying is really one of the great moral questions of our time. And it is one that is going to become even more so as the population ages. I think more and more people are likely to end their life suffering intolerable pain and are likely to want to be in a position where they can end their life. The second is that it is an issue uh, that really speaks to the moral principles that The Economist champions. Uh, We stand for individual freedom. And if you believe in individual freedom, you believe that people should have the right to determine the time and manner of their death. And the third reason why now is that I think we can actually make a difference. I think this is an issue where public opinion is changing fast. It is also an issue that is politically live in a number of countries. Here, obviously, in the United Kingdom, Lord Faulkner's bill on assisted dying has got further than any other attempt in the past. In the United States, three states allow assisted suicide, but it is being actively debated in many other states. And in Canada, earlier this year, a uh, constitutional prohibition on assisted dying was lifted by the Supreme Court. So it's very much of the moment. And I think what we hope to bring to this is a clear-headed analysis of the ethical challenges, but based on empirical evidence. Charlie Faulkner, why did you choose to introduce assisted dying as a private members bill or many other bits of legislation you could have gone for in the Lords? This is an era which I thought was absolutely ripe for change and it was so wrong and remained so wrong the way the system works at the moment. My view is that if you are suffering from eternal illness and you've got uh, less than six months to live you should be able to choose how you die. Uh, So the bill I am proposing allows for safeguards to ensure that it's your genuine view, that you're not being pressured into it, and that you've got the capacity to make that decision, the mental capacity to make that decision, and that you are generally suffering from a terminal illness. But if those conditions are satisfied, then I think you should have their right. Laura Finlay, you 
took a completely different stance in the Lords debate. Why are you opposed? First of all, the Lords debate was about Charlie's bill, Lord Faulkner's bill, and I'd have to say I don't think that the safeguards are safeguards at all in there because they're not absolutes that can be tested and they can't be enforced in law. But also because having looked after patients for all these years, I've had thousands of conversations with people about their dying, have seen their fluctuating wish to die, and then when they have the care that they need, that wish evaporates. And also, my concern here is what you're saying is that just because somebody has a label of terminal illness, which may be wrong, where you think they have a life expectancy of six months, which may be wrong, that you are actually removing from them the protection of society. You're saying that their lives are somehow disposable, that they can be got rid of, and that all the dangers of coercive forces come in. And I think it's scaremongering to talk about people getting older and dying in terrible pain. That is just plain bad care and we shouldn't tolerate it. Theoba, you're on the line from the Netherlands. I know you were on a review panel there. You supported euthanasia initially. Tell us about mm-hmm. what changed your mind. I've reviewed about 4,000 cases of euthanasia and assisted dying, so I have a little experience. Uh, I think a law in itself, is, is it, it, it turns a page, so to speak. It, uh, it creates a new reality in which um, killing a patient at his request um, becomes more and more a, a common decision. Uh, so we started out in the Netherlands in the 1980s and 90s uh, in terms of where you are now, if I may say that respectfully, uh, namely uh, advocating assisted dying for cases of extreme suffering in a terminal phase. But now you can see that once we have this law, more and more groups of patients are insisting that they have the same right. Um, which now has led to a situation that uh, one out of 25 deaths in the Netherlands uh, is with the use of, of, a, of an injection. So I think there is some kind of a slippery slope, really. So what's at stake for those seeking help to die? Jane Nicholson's husband, Tony, was left paralysed after a stroke in 2005. He couldn't do any of the things that he loved to do and he felt that his life wasn't worth living like this. The only thing he could move was his eyes. His swallowing was also compromised, so eating was very difficult for him. As far as he was concerned, he had no quality of life at all. Tony fought desperately for the right to choose his own death in a high-profile court process. Tony wanted to end his life. Um, He was unable to do it physically himself, so someone would have needed to give him a great deal of help, whether it be me or a doctor or someone. Uh, This was something that Tony wouldn't allow me to do. We did talk about it, but he said there was absolutely no way that we would risk this. Um, you know, assisted suicide is illegal. And he felt that he was being discriminated against because of his disability. I mean, if I decided I wanted to die tomorrow, I could go out and kill myself. But the severely disabled don't have that right. I believe they should have the same rights as we have. And at the present, they don't. Tony finally died in 2012, just a week after learning that his latest court battle had failed. Jane has carried on his campaign. She talks there about equal rights for disabled people, but is there such a thing as a right to die and can it be enforced without negative consequences? Charlie Faulkner, why do you believe we have a right to choose the time of our own death? Is that a bit presumptuous? I don't think it is presumptuous. I think if you are 
dying anyway of an illness, you should have control as much as you can about how that death takes place. Uh, my experience of this is that it's very often not uh, the extreme pain, which, as Laura says, can very often be dealt with by palliative care. It is people who are horrified at the thought of the loss of control in their last few weeks or days or months. And it's them who have a completely clear view from which they don't waver that they want to be in control at the end. But why is the law not sufficient as it currently stands? If I could just push you a bit on that, because the judges in the Nicholson case said the Parliament should sort out the, this issue, not leave it to the law is a judge's discretion. The law is absolutely clear at the moment that if you if you provide somebody with drugs to kill themselves, you are committing the criminal offence of assisting suicide. And the way that the law has tried to get round that is by giving the Director of Public Prosecutions a discretion as to whether or not he prosecutes or not. So you end up in a situation where people who love um, uh, the person that they've helped are investigated and the DPP is making a judgment about whether they're compassionate enough, which is ridiculous. Zanny Mittenbedos. I think there are really two questions. One is, do you think the right to die should be simply the right for someone to take their own life with assistance? The clear thing there is that the individual concerned must be taking their own life. They must ingest the drugs that end their life. Or do you think that that discriminates against those people who are physically unable to do that, whether they're disabled, and therefore need to have the medicines administered by a doctor? Now, that second is often called voluntary euthanasia. I rather reject that term because I think euthanasia has is an incredibly loaded term. My own personal view is that the moral um, clarity between them is much, much murkier than most people think and that the practical differences are very hard. When is an illness terminal? When is it not? Is six months the right period? So I would come out on the more liberal perspective on both. But I think societies evolve and I would be very happy to see the UK adopt Lord Faulkner's bill, which I think was a huge step forward compared to where we are now, even if down the road I would like to end up in a position that was somewhere further along. Baroness Finlay. Sony's made a very important point, which is the impossibility of predicting prognosis. We know that you cannot predict a six-month prognosis. You can toss a coin on it. We know that one in 20 diagnoses are wrong and actually people don't turn out to be terminally ill. So if you are going to change the law and if society wants to do this, then take it completely outside medicine and you can put it with the courts and that would be far safer. Theo Boer, you originally supported uh, the right to die in Holland, as, as you said. Do you still fundamentally believe that the principle is valid, which is really what Zani was laying out? Or did you change your mind really about the entire principle as well as the practice? Well, I I think that uh, I can really imagine that people would like to die in a terminal situation or even before they become terminal. I would have that that question very much to Lord Faulkner. You know, uh, talking about discrimination, why would you just guarantee that right to people who will be dying within six weeks or six months? And here I think I am one opinion with Zanny Minton Beddoes. Uh, because people who have uh, years to live in depression or uh, a psychiatric illness can suffer much more, even from uh, yeah, suffer but, because but they Are you in danger more. of arguing against yourself because actually you, you really don't want so much of this availability? So sort of arguing about who gets how what, much well, of it what, might be, what I, be a bit of a danger to your argument. Well, my point is that I do not think that 
uh, law will be the best thing to, to do. I think actually we're living, we're talking about 2015. Uh, there are many, many possibilities for people to end their own lives. And uh, at least in my country, these possibilities are systematically uh, declassified as being inhumane. For example, the decision not to eat and drink. Uh, you know, if I stop eating and drinking, I will be dead in 10 days from now. So why would we then say that this is starvation? Doctors have an obligation to provide the best of, of palliative care. Um, there are really, uh, I don't want to encourage people, but there are many ways to in, import uh, suicide uh, 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 medications from, from China. And so it's the role of the state now. supporting it that it is bothers the point you. That, exactly. So I think you've highlighted the problem. Does the state and society say that we value the life of every individual, the intrinsic worth of them, and that the duty of society is to try to do all we can to improve their dignity, to improve their intrinsic worth and value? But if people decide separately to that, to end their own lives, then they always have and they always will and they can do. And you're quite right. The ability to commit suicide has become much, much easier than mm -hmm. it was previously. The question is, do we involve another group of people, here you're talking about doctors, in bringing about the death of somebody because at face value they are requesting it? And I say at face value because with all the patients who I've discussed this with who have been adamant that they wanted to end their lives, when they have had the care that they've needed, when they've had their needs addressed, their sense of personal worth addressed, those requests have vanished. Zanny, that's a difficult argument, isn't it, for people who support a, a change in the law, that people may, in fact, change their mind? Clearly, what we would like, what I would like, is a society where people who genuinely and persistently would like to end their life because they find their life intolerable, are able to do so while minimising the danger that people who are on a whim feeling depressed or would feel better with better palliative care do not die prematurely unnecessarily. That is a question of how do you design the safeguards. And I firmly believe the safeguards can be designed in a way that maximises or has an optimal outcome in that area. Can I just quickly get back to, to the point that Elora made? Because I think it's just not true to say that, as, as both Theo and you seem to say, that there's always suicide as an option. There isn't suicide as an option for an awful lot of people. And that's what we're trying to change with this campaign. I think we still have some confusion here about the merits of assisted dying versus voluntary euthanasia. Yeah. Now, you chose in your bill, you know, assisted dying. You had no truck with voluntary euthanasia. Correct. Is that because you thought that was a more palatable thing to put before your colleagues in the Lords or because you have a principled doubt about the wisdom of the position that Zani is taking, which is that both of these rights should be equally available? I have a strong principled objection to Zani's position, which is that I think it is completely wrong for the state to kill or authorise the killing of somebody. I think there is a strong line that has to be drawn. You have to take your own life. And that's the principle that informs my bill. It seems to me that where you are suffering from a terminal illness, you should have the right to determine how your life ends. That's my fundamental position. But not otherwise. But not otherwise. Why not? Because it seems to me it is too dangerous for a law to be allowed which allows other people to take 
your life. So it is an essential protection that I think is key to the law. And that is why my law is drafted in the way that it is. Now, assume that you accepted that that protection is there. Then the question is, is it wrong to allow somebody to help you to do it to yourself? And the question is about the safeguards in those circumstances. The safeguards in my bill are two doctors and the court saying it's okay. Theobor, would you be mm-hmm. happier with the situation in the Netherlands had it been limited to assisted dying, had this whole argument that uh, Charlie Faulkner is there addressing about that dividing line with voluntary euthanasia not been the case? Do you think it would have been the better route? Well, actually, I, I think uh, to a large extent I do agree with Lord Faulkner. And, and I think the, the, the whole point in, in euthanasia, which is still comprised about 95% of the uh, of the deaths and only five percent is assisted suicide i think euthanasia in a way takes away from the person himself or herself the ultimate responsibility and i know many doctors who are very much in favor of the of the the um, assisted suicide because then in that case they will not have that many sleepless nights about about having killed a patient so i think i would be very much in favor of lord faulkner's um, change, so to speak. The only point is, I think, he cannot really defend the point that it will be only for for um, people who are in a terminal phase. You're listening to The Great Debate from The Economist. My guests today are The Economist's editors, Annie Minton-Beddows, Lord Faulkner, Baroness Finlay, and from the Netherlands, Professor Theo Bohr. And we're examining the law on assisted dying. Now, Luxembourg, Belgium and the Netherlands all allow some form of direct medical help to die. In Switzerland, people who help someone commit suicide are exempt from prosecution if they act with entirely honourable motives. In America, Oregon was the first of several states to introduce aid-in-dying laws for terminally ill adults. And it was the existence of this law that led 29-year-old Brittany Maynard to move to Oregon from California when she discovered her brain tumour was untreatable. Before she died in November last year, Brittany recorded several videos as part of a campaign to extend the law to other states. Here's a clip from one of them that can be found on the Compassion and Choices website. I refuse to subject myself and my family to purposeless, prolonged pain and suffering at the hands of an incurable disease. Death with dignity laws authorize the medical practice of aid in dying. They give mentally competent, terminally ill adults the option to request life-ending medication that they can choose to ingest if their dying process becomes unbearable. The freedom of this patient right is choice. I want to be sure my husband and mother are with me when I die. I want to leave this earth in my home, in the arms of my husband and my parents. I cannot change the fact that I am dying but I am living my final days to the fullest, spending time with family, friends, and in the great outdoors. And I am preparing to experience the best possible death. Achieving some control over my passing is very important to me. Knowing that I can leave this life with dignity allows me to focus on living. It has provided me enormous peace of mind. 
So that peace of mind is what campaigners are calling for, the option of an already dying person to save themselves the painful last days. And it's this Oregon model that Lord Falconer's last assisted dying bill was most closely based on. Are there things that you admire in the Oregon model compared with, say, the European models, the Netherlands or Switzerland? I reject completely the European models because they tend to be um, euthanasia models. The model in Oregon is basically the doctor concludes that somebody's terminally ill and concludes that it's appropriate to give the prescription. My bill has more prescribed safeguards. It's got two doctors, and as a result of the debate in the Lords, the court, the Family Division of the High Court of Justice, have got to approve that it's an appropriate case for the prescription to be given. The thing about Oregon is it's worked. It's worked incredibly well. Worked in what sense? In the sense that there's no... Everybody's waving their arms. There's no evidence of coercion, in very many cases, the um, people who've got the prescription don't take it because it gives them peace of mind. If you talk to the people who run palliative care and hospices in Oregon, they have come round to it. The doctors opposed it to start with, and they're now in favour of it. But right. Charlie, how are you then going to cope with the person who cannot administer their own lethal drugs you are then going to say what Oregon say which is oh well it's too bad yeah you then have to stay alive I don't think the public see that and I I worry that you're then creating yet another class of person who is then so disabled by their illness and so physically unable to commit suicide that you say well we'll just leave you on the side no, Basically, I- the Oregon model has resulted in an increase in the number of deaths, perhaps not not surprisingly. I think as of February this year, 859 deaths since the law was passed in late 1997. But those numbers are rising steadily. What do you conclude from that? There's a six and a half fold increase in the numbers in Oregon each year. So that if you look at the curve, it's just going on up and up. In the Netherlands, we have now 25 years of experience. And actually, in the first 17 of those 25 years, the numbers remained level. So I think you shouldn't conclude from Oregon um, that the numbers in Britain will stay approximately level or just go up a little bit. I think the really big uh, increase in the numbers in the Netherlands started in 2008 with an increase of 15% annually, where we have now about three doubled. So, so just wait and see. You all focused on, in some sense... This was a terrible thing if numbers of people using assisted suicide or using assisted dying went up. Are we really so sure that's the case? As the, as the population ages, we would expect those numbers to get up if we were trying to minimise suffering. More and more people would choose to avail themselves of that. So we cannot... That's very ageist to say that suffering is equated with the age that you're at. Well, no, you can't do that. You are likely to have more people dying of chronic terminal uh, chronic diseases and painful diseases than at an earlier time when people it's just it's not what about the role of doctors and i would like theo to put that that to you briefly if i could do you find any oddity i think elora finlay has mentioned this as we've gone along in the idea that doctors are asked to do this is that, you know, does that work in practice, having two doctors to sign things off? The idea that these are mobile units, I think, that are used in the Netherlands. So some of these doctors don't have a great detailed knowledge of their lives of their patients. 
Uh, no, well, we have insisted in the Netherlands for, for a couple of decades that euthanasia should just occur within a, a, a long-term patient-doctor relationship. Now, since about three years, we have this end-of-life clinic where doctors see the patients in, you know, on average about three times. and, and then the, the Are you happy the, with that? No, I'm not, because one of the one of the essential safeguards that was unfortunately not explicitated in the law was that we have a firm patient-doctor relationship. So the doctor he could he or she could say that this patient really really is suffering because you have known him or her for for years now. Without this relationship, I think it is very, very hard to judge whether there's really this unbearable suffering and whether there's not an acceptable alternative. I mean, the, the British law that I'm proposing doesn't depend upon unbearable suffering. It depends upon the choice of the person. On the doctor-patient relationship, it would be good if there was one. You can't guarantee that in every place, for example, a parent often moves to live to be near his or her adult child, and therefore they may not have a relationship with the thing. So although I think it would be good if that's possible in most cases, you can't, you can't legislate for it. You're asking here for the doctor to be the gatekeeper on whether or not someone has lethal drugs. In this day and age, doctors often don't know their patients well, as you have rightly said. In terms of asking for a second doctor, human nature is that you refer somebody to somebody who's likely to agree with you. Doctors don't do home visits. We don't know what goes on behind closed doors. We know the evidence of elder abuse is that it's missed by doctors. Coercion goes on and we don't pick it up as doctors. And what I'm saying is that the role of being the gatekeeper and the role of the administrator of lethal drugs is not one for clinical medicine. I don't think that you should have doctors saying, well, I agree with you, your life is not worth living, which is effectively what you will be doing here, and you'll be taking people down the road of despair. Coercion, Zani, and making doctors the judge or the gatekeeper of what is legitimate. Any concerns about that? Well, I hesitate, Anne, to disagree with a doctor, and he's an extremely <laughs> distinguished doctor, so I do this with quite a lot of humility. But I would submit that the distinction you're making is not nearly as black and white as you say it is. I think doctors make enormous numbers of decisions that will determine the fate of their patients already. And you are drawing a bright white line, which I'm sure does not really exist mm. in practice. And I suspect that as the population ages, as medical technology advances, this line is going to get blurrier and blurrier. The experience of talking to doctors, there are some who are against it, there are some who are strongly in favour of it, but the vast majority want the politicians to decide and they will go along with what other people should decide should be the principle. And that's the experience in Oregon. Ilora, if you look at the views of other doctors, the vast majority do not want anything to do with this. In palliative medicine, only 4% of in people in the yet. specialty what are prepared to have any involvement in this at all. Why? Because they look after these patients day in, day out. They have these conversations day in, day out. They see that you cannot make the value judgments, that the person who seems hell-bent on not living any longer, the following day, few days later, few weeks later, would say they never believed that life could have so much richness for them. And when we look at Oregon, we know that one in six of the people who passed all their tests are actually depressed and have an untreated and undiagnosed depression. So it doesn't work. So what about the grey areas? Should assisted dying be extended to people suffering from severe depression or the old and the lonely? 
Sarah Ismail is a journalist and disability rights campaigner who has cerebral palsy. She's strongly opposed to assisted dying, which she sees as a threat to the vulnerable. My life is valuable. I don't know any different. And I definitely would not go to the stage of ending my life because I feel a burden on my carers. They can walk away, but please don't kill me. If assisted suicide became legal, there is that fear that doctors and carers and non-disabled people would make that decision because they think the disabled person is suffering. But with disability, one day you're having a bad day and you could say that you really want to end your life, but that person will say yes, you know, the first three times, but they might say no the fourth time. And if you don't give them that chance... You've ended their life too early. How long is it going to be before the doctors just say, oh, this person is severely disabled, they can't speak, you know, I'm just going to decide for them because they're not able to tell me. I just think a life should end naturally and um, we should not have the right to make it any shorter than it has to be. So is assisted dying too extreme a step and does it simply provide a more convenient solution than providing better health and social care? Though not everyone is as certain as the campaigners, what do you conclude from that? Interestingly enough, the palliative care level in the Netherlands has gone up rather drastically in the past 10-15 years. Uh, Still, the number of people wanting to have assisted dying euthanasia goes up very steeply too. So I think some people really have set their minds on, on dying in that specific manner and that specific way. Um, just like Brittany Maynard also, she she just insists on dying in that specific manner. Uh, I think people are, uh, are increasingly autonomous and they want it and they will stick to their wish. Zani? Yeah, I think that it's very interesting that you say that, Theo, because it seems to me that that is, if that's indeed the case and it is people willingly saying that, that is, they're choosing the manner and time of their death, that, that is a social improvement. That is, people are not suffering when they don't want to be suffering. And I think the, the earlier clip that you played was heartrending. Of course, this is not instead of palliative care. It's not instead of maximum best possible help for the disabled. But I am trying to have a, create something which offers more choice and minimises suffering, not which increases it. Yes, but you, surely the consequence of your position would be that some people would decide to end their lives who had circumstances been different had you know had they thought about it longer had they had different palliative care or support are you basically saying on a utilitarian calculus you're prepared to factor in the fact that some of those people would die who need not have done so so quickly I, this has nothing to do with the utilitarian calculus it is true that if the safeguards are not optimal then it is possible that that would happen but you must set that against the reality that today there are very many people suffering who do not wish to be suffering because of the way the law is right now well zani can i ask you a question Um, You know, I have seen in the last 500 cases that I have reviewed, 50 out of 500 included uh, loneliness as one of the grounds of as- or aspects of, of their suffering. Do you think, I mean, these people want to die, but they want to die because of loneliness. And I think that this is an increasingly uh, big problem in our societies. What do you think of that? Well, I think you. The, it sounds as though the Dutch attitude towards death and the individual's role in death is changing rather dramatically. And I think that we will want to have a conversation as a society as that changes. But I see if you look past in history, there are very many things where society has had conversations 
and things change. And so I think it's incredibly arrogant of us to say that we have it absolutely right and that any change from now on makes the world worse. Now, of course, listening to you, I would hope that the people who, for whom loneliness is the main reason that they don't want to live could be convinced that there are many reasons to want to live and that loneliness is really... So you would a, have them talked out of it? I would. Of course I would make efforts to have people talked out of it. Of course I would have maximum counselling. Of course I would want my safeguards would to make sure... Would you impose it or would you make it available? I would make it available. I would make sure that there were maximum safeguards in this right to die. However, I would want the option to be there because I think the lack of that option is an infringement of individual liberty. Can Ilora. we look at the real world in which we live? What you're proposing is saying that the, we abandon the state of law as we have it at the moment and you replace it with opening the door on assisted suicide and you, Zaini, would also include euthanasia. What I'm saying is the unintended consequences of doing that are far greater and far more dangerous than the situation that we have at the moment. Nobody wants people to carry on suffering. There is suffering and there has been suffering. Suffering is part of life. The role of medicine is to try to relieve suffering, redouble efforts, restore quality of life. I am really worried if you change the law and you say, fine, at this point, doctors can throw in the towel on those efforts. If you want to change the law so that society ends people's lives, helps them end their lives, then keep it outside medicine, but do not distort the role of medicine. I think Danny. you and I actually agree on the kind of world we want. We might mm -hmm. disagree on what the I'm role of the doctor should be, and we might disagree on how, what the law should be to get there. But I think we all want people who feel that their lives are intolerably full of pain should be able to end them. Charlie? You've got to remember that in the Netherlands, you can end your own life if, you're, if, if you find life unbearable and somebody can kill you. That's what it amounts to. I'm very against that law. The law I am proposing is that if you are dying, you can choose the method by how you die. As far as the question of safeguards is concerned, question, if two doctors say it's OK, and then the family division of the High Court of Justice makes a decision after hearing all the evidence, is it likely that mistakes are going to be made? No. Is the position safer than it is now? Very much more safe than it is now. Because of the current law, what you've got is people secretly helping their relatives and there's no inquiry till after the death. So what about the very tricky territory here of age limits? In the Netherlands, euthanasia is legal for children over the age of 12. But last year, Belgium became the first country in the world to have no age limit at all when it introduced a bill to allow euthanasia for terminally ill children. Theobor, I remember the outcry uh, when when this happened. Um, in the Netherlands, this is broadly supported by doctors, I think. And uh, mm -hmm. the, do you feel that there's any particular difficulty about dealing with patients who are under legal age of consent? Well, actually, not really. It's not because I am for euthanasia, but because I think I have the experience that on 35,000 cases of euthanasia, there was in the past 14 years, there was only one 12-year-old and only three 17-year-olds. That is because children in that age uh, do not want their lives be, be, be ended before it is really 
at, at the very last end. So I think the, the Belgian alternative, which is uh, a euthanasia for children at any age, is purely symbolical politics uh, with no practical necessity whatsoever. But on a, a matter of principle, would still need to apply to a hard case. Do you feel that under the age of 16 or 18, wherever you want to draw your legal mm. age of responsibility, that the same law should apply to adults or a different one? Well, I think actually that the Dutch law that, that has the, the, the limit of 12 years of age is rather sensible, sensible because from that age on children are really normally able to express themselves under age 12. I think that the, the competence is highly questionable. Charlie, the numbers may be small, but they are particularly hard cases and they do divide people a lot when they do uh, come up in whichever country. What, what is your view on age and consent here? Uh, my view is that the the right given in the assisted dying bill should be given to people who are competent and have a firm and settled view about what they're to do and have the capacity to do it. I think it's very important you have a clear line that it should only be available to adults because one of the reasons that we, we refer to adulthood is because we draw a distinction in the law between adults being competent to make all decisions subject to mental capacity. So I think the line should be absolutely hard at adulthood. Even if the suffering is very great, because you did predicate a lot of your case on unnecessary suffering. My case is based upon choice and people's right to choose how they die. And I'm very conscious of the fact that people often make the choice to take their life early in a terminal illness because they, they can't think of the prospect of what's going to come in terms of lack of control, which not, might not meet the test of, quote, unbearable or intolerable suffering. It's about choice, but I don't think that choice should be available to anyone other than an adult. Laura Finley, you're opposed to a change in the law anyway, but do you see any special category around young people or indeed children? There are real difficulties if you look at children because of their emotional and development age and there is evidence that actually young people, even up to the age of 25, haven't really... Be able to contemplate their own mortality but you do have to have a line I certainly would strongly strongly oppose extending even your bill to children or to those under 18 but I do think there are real difficulties in imagining that you're putting clear demarcated lines around what you're proposing Charlie because you're saying that certain groups will be in and certain groups will be out and you put different values on life and I think it's safer to leave the law as it is and say our society says life is of value if you are going to assist somebody to get rid of that life then you have to have even more, far more rigorous procedures than you have proposed. Zani, you've argued a fundamental liberal case here, which is about the individual's ability uh, to shape the end of life. Does that also ap apply to young people? Well, when I think this is illness. very hard. I do think that morally there seems to be no reason why a child should not be relieved from unbearable suffering and an adult should. So I don't see a clear, bright line. However, I think the question of adequate safeguards is much, much trickier. All questions of children's medical welfare are questions of a decision between the child, the doctor and the parent. And I think this case is no different. I would personally, in this case, I think make a distinction between the terminal and the non-terminal. And I think that... Children who are suffering from a terminal illness, who are going to die and who are in unbearable suffering, should be able to uh, avail themselves of this law. And I think that those who are not in a terminal illness, one should wait until they reach adulthood. 
Well, what I'd like you all to do now, if I could, is just reflect a bit, a bit on what you've heard from each other, but also from the witnesses in the clips that we heard there on the different sides of the argument. And really just tell me if there's anything that you think has given you pause for thought, or let alone changed your mind, and then really what the ringing argument would be that you'd like us to take away. And I'm going to, unfairly on, on those grounds, I'm going to turn to Charlie Faulkner first. I think it's been a very, very uh, interesting debate. I was very struck by Theo saying that he would have preferred a law like mine. I'm very struck by the fact that Zani would like to go, go further than my law and that Elora is slightly evasive about whether or not she in principle is against it in all circumstances. I think whatever views people um, express, society is so obviously moved on and you see that from the fact that the Director of Public Prosecutions himself or herself, is now not prosecuting. I don't think anybody involved in this debate thinks that you should prosecute people where somebody is dying and people are motivated by compassion. I don't believe the law can't catch up with society, and I jolly well think it should. Ilora Finlay. There is compassion on all sides of the argument all the time. If you really want to have a gatekeeper, then put the courts in control as the gatekeeper. Do not have the doctors in that role. But don't think that by having two doctors, you create safeguards because that is just an illusion and you'll be creeping into legal extension in no time. Theo Bohr. Well, I'm very uh, interested by the thoughts of Lord Faulkner, and I think that we are uh, very much on a par. The point is actually that suffering will continue to to exist, and uh, we will have to live with the fact that there is tragedy. I don't think palliative care will be able to manage all our suffering. Uh, there will certainly in life be situations that we cannot master. I just refute the idea that we can be autonomous. Zani, this is an extraordinarily passionate, emotionally charged issue on which both sides have very powerful arguments incredibly strongly held. And I really salute everybody in this debate for the passion and the, and the importance that it's attached to it. For me, the ethical argument remains very clear. I think that if you believe in individual freedom, as I do, uh, I think people should have the right to determine the time and manner of their death. And I think that we can overcome the challenge of creating sufficient safeguards to ensure that that is only people who persistently uh, feel that their suffering is unbearable. I think the empirical evidence that Theo has brought and that, of course, Charlie Faulkner and Elora have brought here um, has not convinced me that we can't do that. Uh, I think this is an issue whose time has come. We see it in the United States. We see it in Europe. And thanks to Charlie Faulkner, we see it here too. I would like to go further, as Charlie Faulkner said, but frankly, I think that his bill would be an enormously good first step. And I hope very much that uh, if we can do anything to push that, then this will have all been worthwhile. Well, there we must leave our great debate on assisted dying. Thanks to all my guests, Annie Minton-Beddows, Charlie Faulkner, Theo Bohr and Elora Finlay. And thank you for listening. We'll be continuing this debate in the pages of The Economist, on our website, on social media platforms in the coming weeks too. So do have a look and do join in. Many thanks. Goodbye. The Economist.